earlier this week as I was preparing for this weekend, I was not preparing to be up here before you at this time and in this way. You see, I was preparing to just come to church, to meet new people, to meet all of you, fellowship with you, shake hands in the hall, catch up with you all, and then sit in those seats and listen to a sermon somewhere in the Psalms. That's how I started my week, preparing for this weekend. But God had other plans. You see, months ago, I started preparing a message in the book of Jude that would be given at some point in the future when Pastor Ben was incapacitated due to sickness. Well, that weekend has come. And Jude was in a similar position where he went to write his people, his audience, perhaps a church or churches. And he was eager to write them about their common salvation. But then he found it necessary by the prompting of the Holy Spirit to exhort them to contend for the faith. So I would say to you this morning, by that logic by the fact that I started preparing this message long ago only to be used when someone was incapacitated like they are this weekend. And Jude, driven by the Holy Spirit, was convicted to pen different words than he set out to write and therefore said, contend for the faith, not only to his audience, but to audiences forevermore because it's in the canon of Scripture forever. I would say by that logic, God wants you to hear what Jude has to say this morning. God wants you to hear what it means to contend for the faith. Please open up your Bibles to the book of Jude. If you're not sure where that's at, it's the second to last book of the Bible. You go to Revelation, go left, and you'll hit this small book, 25 verses. Recently, we finished the book of John. We finished the book of James, and we finished the book of Ecclesiastes. What do you guys say that we just finish a book of the Bible here this morning together? (laughs) Sounds good to me. So if you're there in Jude, let's read along as I read out loud through these 25 verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. 
These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the servant from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, the void of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to the present and to present you blameless before the presence of his holy, of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Who is Jude? Who wrote this book? Well, we get that from the opening line, but I want to show you the humility of Jude right away, much in the same vein as James. He's the brother of James, so he's a half-brother of Jesus, but he doesn't say that. No, he says he's a servant of Jesus Christ after getting saved, probably after the resurrection of Christ, and his humility recognizes that, no, I'm no longer identified as the brother of Christ. I am the servant of the Most High God, of this King Jesus. He was probably an itinerant missionary, from salvation to this point when he taught. So he'd go around and he would teach different places. And so as he goes around, he's seeing these other preachers, these other false teachers, and is convicted to write this book by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And this was probably written about 30 years after the death of Christ. I want to point that out to say this book is not only a history lesson for us, but also serves as a playbook for modern Christians to understand the necessity for us to contend for the faith. It only took 30 years of the Christian faith for there to be wolves to infiltrate the camp. And here we are over 2,000 years later, almost 2,000 years later, and the playbook's the same. The enemy is like a roaring lion seeking to devour, and he's sending out people to teach falsely to draw God's people away from him, to draw people away from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So point number one, understand Jude's urgency is still our urgency. That's where we need to start, is agreeing to that, that Jude's urgency is still our urgency. Jude, at the end of the day, what is he doing? He's warning us of false teaching. And the warning will never be irrelevant because it is in the Word of God. Every generation that picks up the Word of God and reads the book of Jude is reminded that this is an ever-present danger to have false teachers in our midst. And Scripture is clear that these wolves are an ever-present threat when we read something like Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So on the outside, we see right away in that first verse there, in verse 16, 15, 
that we won't recognize them necessarily by what's on the outside. They might look like normal people, normal Christian teachers. But then verse 16 says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are, there, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Likewise, Matthew ten sixteen says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Christ is very clear. You're going to be in the midst of these false teachers the entirety of your life because that's what I've said in the Holy Scriptures. Jude is exhorting his readers to contend for the faith, and the tense in which he's saying that is forever constantly and boldly, constantly and boldly, always be contending for the faith. And perhaps there's no greater ignorance that places you in greater danger than thinking you're not in the middle of a war when you are in the middle of a war. You see, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against powers and principalities. And one of the most dangerous things that you can do is get familiar with the Christian life to the point where you don't think there's a spiritual battle going on around you. And a big part of the spiritual battle Jude is going to tell us is these false teachers, putting false messages that contradict scripture, not only by their content, but by their lives. They expose their motives by the fruit in their life, as we see in Matthew 7. You know, my dad gave me a great tip when I started riding a motorcycle years ago. It saved my life, actually. He said, son, when you ride a motorcycle, because he had been riding his whole life, he said, the most dangerous moment for a motorcycle rider is when they get comfortable riding a motorcycle. Because you stop paying attention to all of the different cues, the senses, what you're seeing, what you're feeling, what you're hearing, and you get comfortable. And what do you do when you're in your car and you get comfortable? You start thinking about a whole lot of different things. I'd imagine you've been driving your car at one point where you said, how in the world did I get to where I'm going? I don't remember the last 10 minutes because you've just been driving. Well, when you get to that point on a motorcycle, it's dangerous. And I remember I almost ran into the back of a van on a busy highway in Southern California because I started going somewhere else in my head. And before I knew it, they were right in front of me and I barely missed hitting the back of them. And I sold my motorcycle shortly after because I knew I was not the type of person who could pay attention to everything while I was driving. It was exhausting. I have a hard enough time doing two things at once. I can't even write notes down while I'm trying to talk to someone, let alone ride a motorcycle. But why do I bring this up? Because we get comfortable in the Christian faith. As we grow in the Christian faith, we start to get so comfortable that we think we can just go throughout our day without thinking about the dangers around us. We get comfortable as we casually ingest things that we watch, we hear, or we read. To sum up what Jude is saying, he's saying, always be contending. Always be contending. This letter, the tone and purpose of it can be Discovered by examining verses 3 and 4, First Jude pivots from a letter about common salvation, which we read, to a letter about contending for the faith. But then in verse 4, he starts with this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. They've crept in unnoticed. I remember when I was a kid and I liked to read those little scary books where they had short stories about scary things. And there was this one urban legend. You've probably heard of it before, but the story goes like this. And the story only works back when I grew up when phones were on the wall. We didn't have caller ID. The story goes like this. Someone's in their home and someone starts calling them and saying threatening things to them. So they get so worked up and excited that they call 911. And what does the operator say when they trace it? Sir, the call's coming from within your house. Whoa, the arms, 
the hair on your arms stand up as you're reading that as a little kid. Oh my gosh, there's somebody probably in my house right now. But what Jude is saying is there's wolves in the house. There's wolves within Christianity. You don't have to go out to the sinful world and look at all the sinful ways that they live to find people who are trying to take down Christ and the Christian church. No, there's wolves from within Christendom. And we need to be aware of that. And I want to take a moment to create a filter in which you and I should view Jude's warning. This filter is going to be helpful for us throughout this entire time together in Jude because we live in a different time than Jude lived in. We're not just limited to the pastors that we come and hear from on a weekly basis in the church that we attend or go to conferences or itinerant preachers like they would have had back in Jude's time. No, we have a different world. You probably have a phone in your pocket or your purse that gives you access to every teacher on the planet. Think about the warning of this book compared to Jude's audience. Out of every generation that's ever existed, this warning is most relevant to us because we can at any time put ourselves in front of false teaching instantly. Wolves are creating sermons. Wolves are creating podcasts. Wolves are creating videos, and on and on it goes. Wolves are writing books. So we must be discerning with everything that we put before our eyes and ears. That's the filter we need to have as we look at this book. Let's keep that in mind as we look at Jude's game plan to contend. Now, the idea of contending, we need to know this as well, is this idea of struggling within an arena. Think of a gladiator. I want you to think of the fact, if we put you in an arena and your life was on the line, how hard would you fight for your life with every last ounce of energy you had, every last breath within you. That's what Jude is saying. You need to fight with vigor. You need to fight to know the word of God. That's what he's saying. How are you going to contend for the faith? By knowing the word of God and by living it. And if you knew that you were going to be put into a situation in an arena as a gladiator two months from now, would you just sit around and wait for that moment or would you train? You would train. To be victorious in the arena, you have to train to be victorious. To be victorious over false teaching, you have to train to be victorious. So we need to approach every day by being in the word of God, to know God, to know what he says, to obey his word. With this type of thinking, with this type of intensity, to do battle with the powers and principalities that are going to put false teaching in front of you and I every single day. Now, here's an interesting fact about these wolves also, especially in this book. Jude does not accuse them of having false doctrine per se. He's more accusing them of having bad fruit. That's probably why they can hide in plain sight. But this is critical for us to catch here because some of us are going to think, you know, I'm good. I I go to a good Bible teaching church. I I only get book recommendations or recommendations for other content from people that I trust. And I, I don't wander off the path when it comes to this kind of thing. But I think it's important to note that we're all susceptible to being led astray by false teaching. We all need to always be on guard. There will always be false teachers. And their leader is like a roaring lion seeking to devour. There's nothing that is unharmful about what's going on when it comes to their intentions. Our enemy's relentless, so there's never an appropriate time to let our guard down. 
So if Jude isn't accusing them of false doctrine, what is he accusing them of? Well, we see here in the end of verse 4, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, yeah, stuff that comes out of their mouth might be all right, but they are not living the truth of Scripture. They're denying what they believe with their mouth by their actions. They're betraying themselves. Jude is describing here, and we'll go on to describe further, that these wolves might give lip service to doctrinal alignment but fail to live out the moral commands of Scripture. I learned many years ago that it's not good enough when you're vetting out a church to go to to just simply look at their doctrinal statement. You can go to many churches and look at their website, and they'll have a doctrinal statement that sounds just Oh, it's perfect. We're going to go and visit that church. It sounds good. No, you need to hear the teaching. You need to be amongst the people and see how they love each other and obey the commands of Scripture. You know what's interesting is this. James, the brother of Jude, says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons understand intellectually the truth of God because they're under the authority of God. And they understand what truth is. They use that to try to deceive us. There could be a group of demons that could be running a church and have a good doctrinal statement on their website because they understand what to say. They understand what is true, but they do not submit themselves to the authority of our holy God. So perhaps we understand Jude's urgency and we see the need to be on the lookout for wolves within the modern church era, but perhaps even more so, given the access to the many teachers that we have. But what do we do about it? What do we do about this? How do we go about our day? Well, Jude unpacks that for us. Point number two, we must contend by learning how to be a watchman for wolves. We must contend by learning how to be a watchman for wolves. I was visiting my dad in northern Michigan. That's where I grew up. That's where he lives. He has a lot of land. And one day he was showing me, hey, these coyotes in the back, they always come out at night and they come in here and they mess with all my stuff and I'm tired of it. So I got this huge light. He brought out this light that was so big and he said, hey, don't stand in front of this. If you're looking in it, when I turn it on, you'll be blinded. (laughs) This is how powerful this light was. And I didn't really believe him until he turned it on and all the coyotes in the back went, you know, they, they lit up. He had this light to shine on them. And then my dad proceeded to get his gun and try to shoot them. So what I'm not telling you to do is to find the wolves, the false teachers, and shoot them. I just want to make that clear. That's not why I'm bringing this up. I'm bringing this up because as watchmen, we must shine the light of Scripture to expose wolves in our midst. Not just reciting biblical truths and standing in intellectual agreement, but living them out in front of each other. See, reading biblical truth and then closing your Bible until the next day, not meditating on Scripture, not thinking about Scripture all day long as the Scriptures would tell us to do with Scripture, is like lighting a lamp and then putting it out as you leave and not carrying it around with you, not lighting it until the next day. But that's not what God says for us to do. You see, the Christian life is like us walking through a dark forest, this sinful world, and there's a path. And God says his word lights our path. So I want you to imagine you have this lamp that you stay lit. It stays lit all the time because you're in God's word and it is lighting your path so that you don't wander off into those dark woods of sin. That's the life that we live as we walk in obedience to Christ, as he protects us from the sin 
like a siren call to our flesh. We must carry the lamp with us, lit all day long in our lives, to expose the deceit of darkness when we come in contact with it. When we come into the church and we hear preaching, don't turn out your lamps when you come to the door as if the preacher or the leader is going to give you all biblical truth. Carry that lamp in with you and shine a light on the word of God. Compare what we're saying to the word of God and make sure that we're teaching you what is right. Hold us accountable to what the scriptures say. That's what we're up here to do. One brother of mine said, I don't even read the scripture on your note sheet. I open my Bible to make sure you wrote it down right. I said, amen to that. That's amazing. Open your Bible. You should have a Bible open on your lap and you should be looking at everything we're saying and comparing it to Scripture. And when it goes off the range or it contradicts something that you think Scripture is saying, you come and we talk about it. We make sure that we're preaching the Word of God. Bring your lamp in with you everywhere you go into the church. Bring your lamp with you when you're going to have a conversation with someone. You're doing the partners program or you're having a lunch or a coffee. Put that lamp on the table and compare everything you're saying and everything you're living out with this other person to Scripture. Don't turn that off before that conversation. Bring it with you. Light your path wherever you go. When we open up our phones to listen, to watch, or read anything, have that lamp open. I bet you right now, if you opened up any social media app and you started scrolling, if you had a good biblical worldview and you understood what scripture says, you could find an untruth, a false teaching within probably a minute. But what happens if you don't know the word of God? What happens if that lamp is not lit while you scroll through there? When we turn on our televisions... When we entertain ourselves, do we turn out the lamp and put it in the other room? Or do we keep that lit, convicting ourselves of the truth of Scripture, especially of those of us with children? Are we constantly pausing and talking about what people are saying compared to the Word of God? And then when we open up a book, yes, we should all be reading books. Did you know that God wants you to be a reader? Because God wrote a book. He wants us to read it. We all need to be better readers in the Christian faith. At least be good at reading our Bible, but we should read other books too. But books aren't perfect because they're written by people who still have a sinful flesh. So there's times when I even, I'll I'll give a recommendation to a book to someone. I'll say, hey, everything's good except for chapter four. There's something a little off there when it comes to what he's saying about this thing. We need to have that lamp lit and open when we're opening up good books by good teachers. People that we respect and think Divide the word correctly. We don't take their word for it. We take God's word for it. Now continuing, if we look at verses 5 through 7, we see Jude lay out a previous consequence for such behavior. He talks about Israel being judged, fallen angels in Sodom and Gomorrah. And this should give us a sense of the weight of destruction that these wolves can cause. The judgment coming. The offense taken by God for them leading his children astray, leading his people astray. Starting in verse 8, James starts to describe these false teachers. And I want to give you five descriptions to help us learn to be watchmen for wolves ourselves. First, the wolves, they are self-focused. They are self-focused. The idea is that they're receiving new revelation from God or interpreting God's message to benefit themselves. You might be following, watching, listening to, or reading a wolf if they claim to have answers that other teachers don't. Revelation that they have personally received that is new 
or special. Unlike in Jude's day, we have the whole canon of Scripture complete on our laps. We know what God says. We have it right here. When someone claims to be led by God to do or say something, it must align with the whole counsel of Scripture. Be sure that you're not following someone's leadership that is interpreting Scripture by the pursuit of their own pleasure, their own visions, their own authority, so that they can ultimately do what they want, how they want to do it. If someone is properly interpreting and teaching the Word of God, they should have a high view of God. They should have a suspicion of their own desires. They should have a strong discernment for sin. And they should have a shepherd's heart. Second, the wolves, they justify instinctual desires. They justify instinctual desires. Wolves lead with emotions. You may be following, watching, listening to, or reading a wolf if all they ever do is get you emotional with biblical-sounding self-help. But in the end, it doesn't work, forcing you to go back to get them again in a vicious cycle. A lot of times what happens with false teachers, it's the idea of them giving you a cup of water, but it's salt water. And so what happens is you get even more thirsty, and you need to keep going back to them, but it never delivers, creating this vicious cycle of dependence on them for delivering you a way out of your pain and into prosperity. They will attract people to themselves by appealing to their emotional desire. Their operating system is pleasure is good and pain is bad, but that is not biblical. We don't rejoice in our pain in the sense that we like it. We rejoice in our pain in the sense that James 1, 2 through 4 tells us the outcome of pain, the outcome of trials is to become more like Christ. We see that pain is a part of the process in the Christian life. So we understand that pain isn't always bad and pleasure isn't always good. Sin feels good. That's why people do it. We need to deny ourselves. This is where, and this is probably one of the biggest things I think we need to be looking out for when it comes to wolves. This is where we all need to be very careful with sound bites. Soundbite theology can be incredibly dangerous. It can be incredibly helpful to sum up a concept in a short amount of time, but we live in a world of sound bites. Instagram stories are the most successful part of Instagram. Why? Because they're short. You can watch them. You can pass by them really quickly unless something grabs your attention. Twitter, you only have so many characters. You're going to scroll past everything on Facebook till it catches your attention. And you know why? Because they've developed that so that you get an emotional trigger, emotional high every time that you see something, a hidden of endorphin when you have an emotional response to something. That's why you have to be careful. When you hear something that sounds really good about the Christian Christian faith, and it kind of gives you that feeling. You go, yeah, amen. Hold on a second. Let's compare that to scripture. Slow down. Process what you're hearing through the word of God. You know how many drafts I've deleted of tweets in my life? Many. That's why I don't even tweet. Because most of the time, I write something, and I sit there, and I compare it to scripture for so long that by the time I'm done, I'm like, I'm not even going to post this. Because I'm going to be held accountable to everything I say and everything I type. Every word that I put out into the world, I'm going to be judged according to scripture, by Christ. And we need to do the same. We need to make sure we're not consuming these sound bites, just emotionally giving ourselves to what sounds good in the moment. The enemy uses well-crafted poetry every day as the candy that makes the heretical cough syrup go down. That's how so many people have been led astray in our generation. 
These people will attack opposing views with great defensiveness, slandering other biblical teachers. And I know that there are great biblical teachers that have let some things come out of their mouth where even we want to put it back in their mouth for them. They've made some mistakes and said some things. But how do they respond? Do they respond with biblical repentance? Do they explain themselves according to Scripture? Do they have a contrite heart? That's what we need to be looking out for. Three, the wolves, they appear glorious but are spiritually bankrupt. They appear glorious but are spiritually bankrupt. They look great from the outside. They might have an incredible amount of people in their lives that are supporting what they're doing. They may have financial success. They may have a great status within our culture, but they are spiritually bankrupt. You might be following, watching, listening to, or reading a wolf if they are all show and no grow. And that's hard for us to know sometimes because we're not in the lives of these false teachers. We don't get a glimpse. That's why they have sound bites and not someone following them around 24-7. They're loud and brash, but there's no biblical fruit to speak of. Jude is describing men and women who partake in the traditions of Christianity, but only for selfish gain. They're there to feed themselves, not to feed the sheep. They are a hidden reef, he says, which is a great danger to a ship. They're hiding underneath the surface, ready to shipwreck everyone's lives around them for their own gain. These people are waterless clouds. They have the appearance of provision, but what they offer will never satisfy the true needs of nourishment. It's this idea of they're feeding you air. There's no nourishment there. You're going to be spiritually malnourished. Likewise, they are swept along by winds. They are fruitless trees in late autumn. They might look fruitful from a distance, but once you get up close, you see the decay because of where the roots are founded. They're loud and charismatic like wild waves of the sea. Oftentimes when scripture talks about the sea or foam or the tumult of the sea, it's talking about chaos, the sin of chaos. That's what surrounds these false teachers. They're wandering stars alone in the darkness, awaiting final judgment. Although they have no shortage of Followers, friends, and colleagues, they're spiritually alone. Number four, the wolves, they lack humility. They typically don't like to report to a higher authority than themselves. They're at the top of the food chain and everyone else reports to them. You might be following, watching, listening to, or reading a wolf if everything in their world is built to come back to them. Also, what do they get upset about? Is it when they don't get what they want so they complain? Are they quick to share personal victories and take credit for growth that only God can deliver? And and here's another one that we need to be on the lookout for. Are they very good at flattery? We all like to hear nice things about ourselves, and false teachers are great at giving that to us. We have those itching ears. We want to hear nice things about a nice life and about us not dealing with our sin. Well, they'll give that to us, and they'll draw us in by that siren call. You know who never talks about false teaching? False teachers. That should be a red flag for you as well. If false teachers never bring up the fact that there are false teachers, it's all throughout Scripture. Wolves don't want to talk about false teaching because they'll basically be giving you evidence, so to speak, in the spiritual court of law that condemns them. They don't want to give that to you. They know that they won't live up to that test. Five, the wolves, they lack the fruit of the Spirit. 
They lack the fruit of the Spirit. You might be following, watching, listening to, or reading a wolf if they are not setting the pace spiritually. This is a tricky one. Let me explain. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Clearly, there's a call that is higher for leadership within the Christian church. There's even a warning within Scripture that warns us not to desire to become teachers because there's greater responsibility and accountability to that because God knows that we should be setting the pace. Are we still sinners, those of us who teach and who lead? Of course we are. But there should be a great desire, a great vigor to lead the pace. So be aware of people who omit that from their lives, who abdicate that responsibility to other people, who don't hold themselves accountable to the word of God, who when they sin, they're not quick to repent. They should be leading the pace. Are they living in accordance with the scriptures and what God says Christian should behave like? And here's the other thing. If we like a leader, we're all tempted at some point to make excuses for them. If we start to like a leader in some way, Maybe they've taught correct doctrine for a long time or they've lived a life in accordance with the scriptures. I've even had this happen in the last several years where great authors, great teachers who I respect have started to go off the range a little bit. They have gone off the path, not lighting it by the word of God. And it's tempting for me to make excuses for them because I liked them. I liked what they had to say. But now I can only read the books from two years back and before because they've gone off the range. They're no longer living according to the scriptures. We need to be careful with how emotionally invested we get with people that we don't bring up to them when they've gone off. The opposite should be true, should it not? You should hold your leaders and your teachers to a higher standard to make sure that they're teaching in accordance and living in accordance with the Holy Word. Leaders should be held to the highest standards. If someone you watch, follow, listen to, or read isn't setting the pace for Christian living in accordance with the scriptures, well, then don't take advice from them on Christian living. It makes perfect sense. See, these people, they don't exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the list that we see, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit. These are the things we should see coming out of somebody. Now, here's the thing that's tricky with false teachers. They can fake that until they don't get what they want. Watch what comes out of people when they don't get what they want. Do they have a contrite heart? Are they humble before a holy God? Do they have a right view of their sin and a high view of God? Or do they start to be identified by that other list that comes before that in Galatians 5? Wolves are real, and we know that false teaching is real, and we should learn how to detect and avoid them if necessary and call them out to protect one another, not just for our own selves and our own lives, but to help those around us to understand when they are partaking in false teaching. But Jude also gives us some instructions regarding our own behavior in verses 20 through 23. He, he doesn't want us to spend all of our time just going out and finding wolves and making a big noise about who they are and how they should repent. He ultimately wants us to spend time contending in another way. And that is to contend by persevering regardless of the circumstances. Persevere regardless of the circumstances. The world is dark. It seems like our world and our backyard is growing darker every day. 
The realities of sin are exposed right in true living color before us online and out in front of our faces all the time. But we can contend by persevering regardless of those circumstances. We have five ways to do that. Jude has told us about here, starting in verse 20. First, to contend by persevering, we must build God's church. Let's be busy building God's church. Let's build God's church by being someone who's in the church, who's serving the church, who's discipling other people. Let's plant more biblical churches. Let's do the work of building God's church. Jude says, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. This is the opposite of the wolves who seek to build themselves up at the expense of the faith. We must focus on obedience to the scriptures, trusting Matthew 16, 18 through 19. It says, and I tell you, you are Peter, Jesus talking to Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. God's church will be built, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? We need to have that confidence as we look out at the dark world and we see more people perverting the scriptures. But we also need to know that God is not done yet. Because Jesus hasn't come back, we know, based on what Peter tells us in the scriptures, that God is not slow. He is patient. That all may come to repentance. God is drawing people to himself, working on their hearts through the Holy Spirit And he wants us to go make disciples, to preach to them the full gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived a life for us, he died, and he rose again, so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. There are people under false teaching right now that God is working on their hearts. He's removing veils, and we need to be there to bring the truth of Scripture because God's church will be built, and hell will not prevail against it. Let's rejoice in the confidence that we are on a winning team. It's kind of like... Living the Christian life is kind of like watching a championship sporting event that's DVR'd and you already know the outcome. This happened to me once. I was really excited about watching this really important soccer match. And I had DVR'd it because I had a ministry thing going on, so I couldn't watch it till later. And I tried to tell all my friends. They didn't listen, but I told them all, don't tell me what happens because I'm going to go watch it. I'm sitting down to watch it. And one of my friends texts me, can you believe this happened? And explains what happened in the match. I was like, oh my gosh. Well, at least my team won. So I was excited about that. So I fast forward to the half, you know, half time and I start watching. And about three quarters of the way through, I'm like, there's no way they win. There's no way they win. They're down like two goals and they're playing horribly. And I text them back, are you sure that they really win this match? Well, how often do we feel that way in the Christian life? We don't know when Christ will return, but we know who wins. Yet here we are worrying about the way the world is operating thinking we don't know the outcome. I was even getting anxious for my team watching that game, that match, even knowing they won. But we need to trust the promises like I needed to trust my friend. We need to trust the promises of God, that Christ will prevail. The deed of that forest we're walking through has already been bought by the blood of Christ. He already owns it. He's coming back to get it again. And he's coming back in judgment. He's going to judge this dark world and he's going to bring us into glory if we're in Jesus Christ to reign with him. That's how this ends. We need to keep our focus on that. Number two, pray in the Spirit. 
when we encounter wolves, as I just said, it's easy to get scared and intimidated by their power and even their apparent success that they have, even the way that the Bible describes it, right? God calls us sheep, and he calls them wolves. Well, imagine if you put a sheep and a wolf in the same pen. I I know who's winning that fight. And so there's some intimidation here at times, but Jude reminds us that we have the Spirit, and they don't. We have the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in us, and they don't. We must believe in the power of prayer. One of the greatest ways we can contend for the faith is to come before the holy throne of God and call down his power in the name of Jesus Christ. God is on the throne, and you can approach him there by the blood of Christ as our mediator, as our high priest. We can go to God on the throne. What an amazing thought. What an amazing reality that we can go to him and ask him for what only he can do. Do you believe that? If so, let your prayer life Back up that belief. Number three, abide in the Lord. Abide in the Lord. 1 John 4.16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And other places in Scripture, what does Jesus say? He says, those who are my family, those who are my friends, Those who are my people, they do what I say. They obey to the scriptures. They obey. They're obedient to what I say. That's how we abide in the Lord. We need to be in the word of God and we need to live out the word of God. Number four, keep an eternal perspective. Keep an eternal perspective. For the wolves... The presence of Jesus Christ will usher in judgment. For Christians, we wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. When you walk through this world, you walk down this path, this path that's lit, that's narrow by the word of God, and you see all the darkness around you in this world. Just know that one day, Sooner than we think, even if the Lord tarries, how long are we going to be around? We will come to an opening in that forest. and We'll be able to turn off our lamps because that world, when we are in perfect glory with Christ, will be lit by Jesus Christ himself, the word. We light our path now by the word of God, but we will be with the word someday, and there will never be darkness again. There will never be the existence of false teaching ever again. We can believe everything that we hear when we're in heaven. How great is that? Keep that perspective. Five, rescue rather than ridicule wolf followers. Rescue rather than ridicule wolf followers. Jude gives us the impression that the wolves themselves will be judged by God. There may be nothing we can do to confront or pursue the false teachers in this world. However, he makes a strong appeal for us to have mercy on those who doubt. We are to bring those who have wandered into false teaching back to correct doctrine and practice of the Christian faith. You know, there was a false teacher a long time ago by the name of Joseph Smith. And there's a lot of people in this valley who've wandered off that narrow path to follow his lies, his false teaching. 
And his message was so powerful as a wolf, as a false teacher, that we see all these people in complete deception. And we need to have compassion on those neighbors of ours who are following this false teaching. We need to come alongside them. We need to pray in the Holy Spirit that the veil would be lifted from their face and they would see the truth. They would see that they're on the wide path to destruction. They would see that they don't serve the Jesus of the Bible. We need to know the word of God. So when we are put in that position with all of these people throughout the valley who are deceived by a false teacher, we know how to lead them back to the path, lighting them by the word of God. We see how important this is right in our own backyard, but we need to have compassion. I know we have righteous indignation over the teachers and the leaders within that lie. But we need to have compassion and a heart of tenderness for those who have been deceived. And from what my experience is, that takes time. It takes a long time especially when people have been deceived for so long as they have. But we need to be praying. We need to snatch them out of the fire, as Jude says. That's our mission, to snatch them out of the fire or snatching them from the judgment that they're heading toward. And just like if we were to snatch them from a burning building, we want to be careful not to hurt ourselves. And I think that's what Jude is speaking to. He says, show mercy with fear, knowing that while attempting to rescue such people, we can't get too close to their false doctrine, the garment stained by the flesh. And I would just say this, in an attempt to rescue, don't participate. As you see those who have succumbed to false teaching, make sure you don't participate in that false teaching in any way, lest you be deceived as well. Bring the word of God and the truth of the word of God to them and trust in the saving power of Jesus Christ in that process. I had a grandfather who took me fishing when I was a kid, and this was a fisher of fishermen. I mean, he was out on the lake 250 days out of the year. I'm not sure if that was healthy, but he was out there that often. And he lived in northern Michigan, so he was out there on the ice during the winter as well, and he just loved fishing. And he was an old-school guy, and technology started to get better and better. So at one point, he started checking out these things called fish finders. You hook them to your boat, and you can start to see the fish where they're at. And he didn't really like that. He thought it was cheating. But on the days where it was pretty slow and he couldn't find them, he'd turn it on, right? We'd go, we'd go find those fish. But I want you to think about a different context. Imagine if there was a food shortage. No one could find food to eat. How priceless would that fish finder be? To go and find fish to feed his family, he'd probably save the lives of his family. And we need to think about our wolf finder. We need to think about how we calibrate our ability to see false teaching because it could save the lives of those around you, those who are in the balance, who are thinking about what is truth. And you can come alongside and say, well, that's not truth. Let me show you what truth really is. I want to end this morning where Jude ends in this doxology in the last two verses. Such an encouraging way to finish our time in this book. I love how Jude ends this way, encouraging his readers to remind them of who they serve. Who's going to keep them from stumbling and keep them blameless? It's not going to be their works, lest we fall into works righteousness, just like the false teachers we're trying to stay away from. No, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What an encouragement. I do remember fishing with my grandfather, and my favorite times fishing with him were when we'd go out to fish the big fish. We had fish called pike back there. When we'd go out on these big lakes, and we'd get a, a pike on the line, and it was a hard battle. I had to contend with that pike. So when I started, I had to listen to what my grandfather would say and follow all of his direction. But there'd be a moment where he'd have to come and put his arms around me and grab the rod and help me. And I want us to remember as we're living our lives for Christ and as we're thinking about false teaching and how intimidating this can be, one, we need to put our focus foremost on Jesus Christ. We can get caught up and all of the false teaching, and all that's going on in our world that's contrary to Scripture, and spend all of our time there. But Jude wants us to know, God wants us to know, so spend your first moments, your first fruits, give those to the Lord. Wake up in the morning and open your Bible, not your phone. Spend time with the Lord, seeking to know Him, and His words will wrap around you and comfort you in time of need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Jude. We thank you for this reminder because it's in your holy word that we will have forever. We know that this will always be a problem. There will always be people looking to twist the truth of scripture, looking to live contrary to use your word in vain, your name in vain. Lord, we love you and we hate seeing that because we love you. We hate seeing that because we love those around us and want to see them removed from such lies to experience the joy of being forgiven, of being your child, and the reality of being forgiven for all of eternity, being reconciled to a holy God. Lord, let us not forget what we're here to do. You've told us, you've given us a mission to make disciples. Help us just to put this in our tool bag to realize while we make disciples, we're contending for the faith with false teaching at the same time. Help us to just with vigor trained to know the word of God. Lord, we know as there's more and more false teaching or twisting of your scripture, we need to know the authentic word of God more and more. Help us to meditate on it. Help us to memorize it. Help us to hold and to cherish our Bibles. Help us not to take for granted that we're even allowed to have them, that we're allowed to gather together and to warn each other of these things. There are people throughout the world, Lord, we know that don't have that privilege Help us not to waste this opportunity. Help us to truly seek you, to know your truth, and to live it out. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.